Media Mind, a new podcast from the TRT World Research Center, unpacks some of the most popular yet misunderstood news events of the month, examining them and connecting them to the defining political, social, and intellectual order of the 21st century. In each episode, academics, journalists, activists, and opinion leaders will unravel political narratives surrounding issues ranging from global politics and media controversies to criminal justice and corporate crime. Hello and welcome to Media Mind. I am Tarek Sherkawi, the manager of TRT World Research Center. In this episode of Media Mind, my guest is Professor Hatem Bazian, who will speak about the discrepancies in modes of representation and the double standards behind the Western mainstream media portrayal of worthy victims, such as in Ukraine, and unworthy victims. Professor Bazian will unpack some of the underlying factors behind media bias and political misrepresentation that became so blatant in recent weeks. To translate some of what is happening in the media sphere, this is Media Mind. Well, hello, everyone. Um, it is with great pleasure that I welcome Professor Hatem Bazian uh, with us. Professor Bazian is uh, executive director at the Islamophobia uh, Studies Center. He is uh, also professor at the Zaytuna College. He also lectures at U- UC Berkeley and he is the editor of the Islamophobia Journal, among many other professional things and uh, appellations. Professor Bazian, welcome to the Media Mind podcast. Well, thank you, Tara, for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you very much. Um, of course, uh, we have been discussing a little bit about that before, but as you know, we follow the, the current developments in, in Ukraine. It is painful to watch, of course, all this death and mayhem and the plight of civilians especially i mean it's very unfortunate of course we know a lot about this these problems a lot about these issues that are encountered by civilians and by uh, by the civil population unfortunately the mina region have been uh, rife with these conflicts and we have seen uh, so many invasions so many wars colonization all that and some of it is still uh, ongoing so just you know, to make the point that we sympathize, of course, with the, with the victims. We empathize with the victims in Ukraine, anywhere in the world. We uh, we have, uh, of course, we offer our thoughts and prayers to all. Um, there is, of course, in Ukraine some dissimilarity uh, between what's happening there and other locations in the world. And maybe it's a positive side of the coin for you, Ukraine and Ukrainians, is that they have the attention of the world. You know, overall, the debate surrounding, for example, Ukrainian refugees in Europe has been more than positive. I know there is very little commiseration for them, you know, in this, but at least it's better than other, you know, situations. In comparison, for example, the political discourse uh, vis-a-vis refugees uh, from Syria, Iraq, Palestine, Afghanistan is very, very different. I mean, even recently, we have seen how some of these you know, some of these right uh, or far right leaders uh, of political movements, they have been very vocal saying that, for example, the Spanish president of Vox, he said, uh, you know, we must accept Ukrainian refugees, but ban all Muslim refugees, calling the Muslims colonizers. So why, and I'm sorry for this long introduction, but why is in your opinion, you know, all this discrepancies in the political discourse. I mean, we are now used to seeing all these far-right movements having direct access to mainstream media and having their 
discourse all over and becoming mainstream. Um, so what do you make out of it? Why do we see these discrepancies in, 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 in treatment, especially from a political point of view? I think it's, to begin with, it's important for us to express our sympathy and understanding of what the Ukrainians are going through uh, facing a Russian invasion uh, at this particular time, but not wanting to replicate the discourses that both are in the media and some of the political elites when we need to step back and understand that this is, we want to look at European history, I would say that this is normative part of European history rather than exceptional in terms of uh, intra intra-European violence and intra-European warfare, so much so that if you study European history, uh, it is actually one chapter after the other of uh, wars that have lasted sometimes 30-year war, the 100-year war, and not only that, but actually having two war wars, meaning that you have the whole globe being in blood-soaked period centered on European history. What it, what the media is representing is, again, exceptionalizing the circumstances that are befallen Europe. And for those who study even the Ukraine and Crimea, the Balkans and so on, these are the heartland of the conflicts that existed. And then if you go to the West, Germany, France and Britain had bloody wars and so on. So what we are seeing is this almost erasure of history and some of the media and uh, the politicians immediately almost knee-jerk reaction of going to Islamophobia, this truly tried trope. So you get Charlie Degada from journalists saying that this is, uh, and he said he wants to be careful in his words. And I was wondering if he was not careful, was in a dinner table, that this is relatively civilized. This is not Iraq. This is not Syria. So the point of distinction, which goes back to the work of Fanon, who actually described the cities of light versus the city of darkness or the city of, uh, you know, the subhuman, the, the colonized. And this is part of Eurocentric discourse that made the binary where you, on the one hand, you have history filled with violence and completely gets erased. And then almost thinking of global South, the Muslim world, Africa, Asia, and other places in a completely dehumanizing way, as well as thinking of them in a pathological way. So violence is their lot. That's who they are. And we, on the other hand, are civilized. Now notice me and you just recently were in Bosnia and Sarajevo. And some of the journalists were saying that this did not happen in Europe since World War II. So there is even an erasure that the genocide, the Bosnian genocide from 1992 to 1995, that witnessed almost 300,000 being uh, slaughtered with the international community observing. The United Nations were there with the Sarabnica massacre. The United Nations so-called observer and observer team and protection team was there. Yet you have this erasure of 300,000 women being used as instrument of war in terms of rape. Uh, and this gets to be completely erased and say it never happened in Europe. And I do think that the distinctiveness of the Muslim identity in relations to Bosnia does a double erasure, in a sense, both erasing the history, but also erasing the presence of Islam and Muslims in the heart of Europe and completely gets wiped out as if it is legitimized in this discourse. So I think what the current invasion of Russian invasion of Ukraine is opened a Pandora bar in relations 
to exceptionalizing European history while also insisting on an Islamophobic discourse across Europe. Well, that's, uh, that's really interesting. And, and I really appreciate your point about uh, erasure. Um, just for, for our audience, I mean, we can give some examples. For example, like Hitler is, I mean, we know very well what he did. And, you know, it's very well publicized because the victims were mostly European. But for example, if we take uh, Leopold, the king of Belgium, who killed like 15 million of Africans, I mean, there is no history book or very few history books like official on the curriculum who teach uh, the kids about this, uh, you know, this atrocity. So there is always this double standards and erasure on one hand, like the victims from other locations, not Europeans, etc., are rarely reported. And as you said about Bosnia, even though they were a European and they were they are of Slavic origin, they still because of Islam they were even even though they have this European descent and they were from origin European origins. I mean, the fact that they were Muslims was not in their favor and they were completely erased. Now this yeah. is a this is a very good point. I mean, we can take it to to discuss some of the you know the frames, the media frames, like for example about refugees. I mean, we have seen how, for example, these these are these double standards. In 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 2014, it was uh, like uh, it, like the whole world was about the refugee crisis. Like the media everywhere was you know using this headline: refugee crisis, refugee crisis. Right now, I mean, we have seen just in a couple of weeks, two two million, if not two million and a half Ukrainian. But then you know the coverage you know, uh, for them is sympathetic. And of course we do appreciate that. But at the same time, there is, I mean, the treatment for other refugees was horrible. It is still horrible. I mean, we have seen these comments that you mentioned. I mean, I, I would like to, to dwell a little bit on this concept of yeah. um, you know, amnesia and double well, standards. I mean, how, yeah, I, how I can you, yeah. Uh, Sorry, I wrote, my, my book that just I uh, released in just this past April, it actually is titled The Erasure of the Human, the, post, the Collapse of the Post-Colonial World and the Refugee Immigrant Crisis or Immigration Crisis. And the Western response to the Ukrainian refugee uh, crisis right now or challenge is very positive, sympathetic, rightly so. Again, no human being should be dehumanized, should be put in the category of subhuman. Uh, but as we speak today, there's hundreds of thousands of refugees from the global south that are sitting in prisons, in detention centers in Italy, in Greece, in Malta, Spain. Uh, you also have uh, thousands of refugees, immigrants in Calais on the border between France and England on the Euro Tunnel. You have hundreds, if not thousands, also in various streets in France, England, and so on. You have daily deaths in the Mediterranean, refugees that are taking uh, journeys from North Africa. You have the death of the refugees and immigrants in the English Channel. And then here in the United States, while the coverage have focused on the need to help the Ukrainian refugees, rightly so, we have detention centers that across the border, uh, we have refugees, immigrants that are prevented from entry. And in here, again, I have to go to the distinctions that are being made in relations to who the refugees are and their identity. In one of the uh, political snippets, uh, it said that these are high-quality immigration. These, quote, intelligent, middle-class, and so on. Well, if this is the notion that these are high quality immigration, then one has to ask the question, 
what is the low quality immigrations and what is the low quality refugees, which immediately gets us the low quality is associated with the color of the skin, racism, and also the religious identity, Muslim, racializing Muslims in relations to Islamophobia. Now, we know that uh, many of the Syrian refugees, many of the Iraqi refugees, many of the refugees from many parts are high quality immigrations because every human being is a high quality immigrant and refugee. And I, ironically, that both in the Islamic tradition, Christian traditions, and many of traditions, is that uh, we celebrate the stranger, right? In the biblical tradition, right? Uh, that the stranger is a person that is bringing in what you call uh, spiritual gifts, but also in in general in renewing the society. Our Muslim tradition is even our dating of the Muslim calendar is the hijrah, the migration, which is starting in you. So in this sense, that not only that what you see is that the crystallization of European racist Islamophobic discourses as we speak, uh, but also almost an abandonment of the deeply held faith-based understanding. So Fran says that we're a Christian secular society. So which part of the Christian part that you are actually speaking, if you're making a distinction, especially as we see the French elections with Eric Zamor, who basically does not want the Muslims to be coming in. He looks at them as incapable to be assimilated into Frenchness, considering himself being of an Algerian background. I wonder if really he could be true French to the source, as Marie Le Pen insists, which means a blood test in this sense. So all these are issues that we deal with relative to uh, the distinctions that are being made, the sympathies that are being expressed. And I do have to say that these sympathies are expressed because there is a political alignment between the United States and Western Europe as it relates to Russia. So the good quality immigrants is the one that at least can express or uh, from a power perspective, it has a closer alignment to the power dynamics. And those that are rejected, demonized, uh, racialized are those that are seen to be uh, uh, from the wrong side politically. And that's the Muslim, North African, uh, Africans from you know uh, Senegal, Mali, and so on. And I may add that even at the same time that we speak today, the French just last month deployed their forces in uh, Mali. But yet that is, go that is considered to be the good invasion or the good intervention. And Russia's intervention in the Ukraine is the bad in intervention. And this also gets us into the United States was also engaged in bombing Somalia simultaneously as we speak, and also facilitating the destruction of Yemen by selling weapons to two countries, both United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia, that are engaged in the war in Yemen. So in here, you can also that engaging in this type of Eurocentric view of the world, there are good invasions and bad invasions. There are good refugee, high quality refugees and bad or wrong quality refugees. There are interventions that are made for defense of civilization. And there are interventions that are made to undo civilizations. All these are binaries. And I think people who possibly read Edward Said and Fanon and so on understand some of these. Uh, these are very well established and very well traveled tropes. Yes. Oh, well, that's, that's really good that you uh, mentioned uh, some of these highly established uh, scholars like uh, Edward Said, like uh, Franz Fanon like Albert Memmi, you know, in, in this podcast, we praise ourselves, you know, and we boast about like trying to go beyond just scratching the surface. So I would really appreciate if you could give our audience, you know, just like uh, some 
some idea about uh, you know the the thought of Edouard Said and Franz Fanon, for example. And I, I I read your article that was published last week. It's an excellent article about his thought and and the situation right now in the the, the war in Ukraine. So can you like just give us an idea about the the, the thoughts and the, the ideas that these established scholars have brought to the uh, academic field? I think what if we look at uh, both Edward Said, Franz Fanon, also it's important to read uh, W.D. Bois in terms of his work on the issue of race. We have to take as a point of departure that the world that we are living in today has been formed over a 500 plus year period. It is at the moment of, you could actually date it a little bit uh, earlier, to the Crusades, which itself was an economic project. You know, uh, Pope Urban II, in his speech to unleash the Crusades, said that Europe is a very uh, small territory, uh, does not have much resources, uh, we fight one another, and uh, in essence, what we need for this to stop, and let's take a campaign into the Holy Land. So the crusade itself, the multiple crusades, were really at the root economic an economic project uh, to try to resolve internal European disputes by going and finding and acquiring resources somewhere else. But moving forward, the cultures of Muslims and Jews in Europe, that brings in the, the articulation of a racial identification based on religion. So Muslims and Jews were the wrong type of people, and Europe as we speak, emerged as a distinctive territory, even though that this distinctiveness can be challenged at the time. Europe, to emerge as a Christian white society, it had to expel those whom it deemed to be from the wrong religious slash racial category, Muslims and Jews. And uh, at the time, as you remember, the Ottoman sent their fleet to evacuate some of the Jewish populations and Muslims to be brought into the Ottoman uh, territory. That discourse also energized the, uh, after the expulsion in 1492, the attempt to find a bypass way to uh, go to India. The question that I often ask in my class, why did Columbus attempted to go to India, even though that we have already two well-traveled routes to India that has been in existence for three to 4,000 years. The Silk Trade route that uh, went all the way from China, ending up in through uh, the land route, Iran, the, you know, the Ottoman territories, and then into Europe. And then the, the sea route that went through the Indian Ocean to uh, Yemen, the port of Aden, uh, through the Red Sea, and then uh, the Mediterranean into Europe. At the core that Columbus was attempting to avoid Muslim territories uh, and also the Mediterranean, which was a very well-developed uh, uh, economic system based on cooperations as well as challenges. But that system had existed for quite some time and people were paying tariffs, which is, again, it's an Arabic word that's adopted to English, tarif, which is a fee for you to be introduced to the market forces and the uh, merchants. So Columbus himself arriving into the new world immediately actually articulated a racist view of the indigenous population, and that gets us into the formation of the new world. The new world started by attempting to bypass Muslims, racializing Muslims and Jews, anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, and then begin to construct a whole discourse. And that's what 
Again, Edward Said uh, pointing to the French arrival in Egypt in 1797-98 uh, campaign and a whole repertoire of representing the other. Uh, that structure of representation is really rooted on this modernity that has been shaped around the racial epistemic, who belongs to the category of the civilized, who, do, who belongs to the category of the uncivilized or the subaltern. It also casts, I put out an article about the white man's burden, uh, the United States and its campaign in the Philippines, which actually came to the Philippines to try to colonize and help the Spanish colonizers at the time. And much of the U.S. engagement in the Philippines was against the Muslims, who were predominantly southern to the south of the of Manila. And so the White Man Burden's poem by Rudyard Kipling was specifically actually rallying what we call the White Man Burden to civilize the global south or civilize those who have a different racial dynamics. And Edward Said's Orientalism, as well as covering Islam, uh, cultural imperialism, all these works uh, were attempting to un disentangle this construction that is projected on the Africans, the Muslims, the Asians, and each have a set of what you call stereotypical images. At the core of it, rationalize the intervention, meaning that you're uncivilized, therefore I need to civilize you, meaning I need to come and take over your country. Your hygiene is not the correct hygiene, I need to civilize you. And that have shifted right now. We don't use the same, even though some reporters are still using civilized and civilized. Now we say you're, you don't have an open market economy, so we need to come and intervene in your country. You don't have what you call a de democratic institution, and we need to intervene. So we need to actually come with the gun in order for us to dismantle your society, in order to put a, a ruling elite that is reflective of our own priorities. So the language shifted, but the same contours are still there that both Edward Said and uh, Panan actually dealt a little bit more with the psychology that at least uh, crafts around the image of the colonized and the image of the colonizer, uh, which also similar to Albert Mimi, that these are two constructed antagonistic forces uh, that uh, are at play in the colonial structure, but also has ramification in the contemporary period. Well, this is, uh, this is again, very, uh, very interesting in the sense that, I mean, we can see that uh, a lot of the representations, modes of representation that exist today and which are conveyed sometimes by media, by popular culture, um, they have some ideological roots, like, um, like you have said about uh, Orientalism, about this concept of otherness. So this is really interesting. But let me jump now again to the to the, what the media is uh, currently conveying. For example, we have noticed this approach towards uh, foreign fighters and uh, towards the concept of resistance and how, for example, now all mainstream media are praising, you know, these brave Ukrainians and, you know, they, they are showing how to make cocktail molotovs in, in television, live on television, and how the, the, the whole concept of resistance and the foreign fighters and people coming from different faraway lands to fight for Ukraine is praiseworthy, is good, is nice, and these people are heroes. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, we know that this, is, this concept doesn't apply, it didn't apply. I mean, a lot of, uh, lot of people, when they're Muslims, when they're from other locations, and, you know, they're either labeled uh, terrorists or uh, something else. So um, Palestine, for example, is a, is a figure and is an example. 
striking example actually how the resistance the concept of resistance is demonized is the the resistance there is something that the media doesn't like uh, very you know often it has a, a negative connotation so can you shed please some light on the discourse on uh, resistance and how the media and the subjective application kind of uh, um, schools this uh, this concept one has to actually say and again my article on ukraine and Fanon, racism is atmospheric in western discourse attempted to tackle this particular issue because Fanon worked again one of his chapter on on violence and was trying to deal with how decolonization is a violent act or rooted in in a, a, a response in violent means and he said that the colonial structure or colonization was a violent act in itself and responding to it in essence required the use and utility of violence in that now setting this issue aside the distinction between violence of the colonizer or violence on the western world it is defined or labeled as a good violence violence that is for a higher purpose violence to institute civilization in this sense while violence over resistance is negative because it's challenging the eurocentric white supremacist colonial structure in its attempt to lay out its program its foundation now we're seeing some of that reflected even though that both the russians and the ukrainians are white but there are some white more white than others meaning that the ukrainians have been crafted as being part of the western civilization and in here the western civilization in essence it assumes a certain set of priora that reflect of the priority of this current discourse while the russians are refusing to accept this supremacist view of what needs to be interesting enough if you go across poland which is on the one hand is welcoming the ukrainians while simultaneously saying not a single muslim will be allowed in and ukraine and poland which has a small minority of muslims have been engaged in what i call hyper islamophobic discourse in order to define itself as being part of the western world so in here the line of demarcation of being part of the west and not being part of the west right now it sits at the border of muslimness meaning muslimness defines the possibility of being included versus being excluded and in essence it's also somewhat of a departure uh, not an abandonment a departure because for a long period of time europe point of demarcation was on the jewish subject and that's why it's very important to understand in terms of the use of the jewish subject in european imagery as the unassimilable other that the jews cannot be assimilated and that's resulted both on the holocaust on the one hand and also the externalizing or sending the jews to palestine as a way to resolve the jewish question in europe which is a racist question anti-semitic question now european question is the muslim question it's a racist question which you see it re reflected and articulated which gets us into the violence issue so violence in the global south violence of resistance violence of liberation struggle was never supported by the colonial power and we should not expect it to be supported why because there is a core epistemic oppositional forces in right the french did not support the uh, algerian colonial resistance they killed about a million and a half during the last 
four to five years of the resistance movement against the French colonization. And over the years of the French colonial uh, presence in, in Algeria, over six and a half million Algerians were mowed down, so much so that it also was a, a sickening, despicable practice, which is decapitating the heads of Algerian resistance fighters and taking it to be exhibited in museum in France. So in this sense, French violence is a good violence. Uh, French resistance is a good resistance to, not resistance, but violence on the colonial, uh, colonial territory is acceptable, which gets us into this amplification of inviting jihadis into Ukraine. And I'm using jihadis in here in a specific way to point, because as soon as you deploy the term jihad, jihadi, you know you are dealing with securitization, countering violent extremism. We need to find out which mosque people go to. We need to see which part of the Quran they're reading. We need to change the curriculum. All this racist, despicable discourse is introduced. And you can't get clearer than this in is in relation to the treatment of the Palestinians as it relates to their resistance to settler colonial apartheid structure, which if you look at it, the Amnesty International said it's an apartheid. Uh, human Rights Watch said it's an apartheid. Beit Salem, which is an Israeli human rights, said it's apartheid. And the United Nations said it's apartheid. But you cannot actually resist. Why? Because Israel is incubated and it represents the continuity of colonial violence from the global North Eurocentric into part of the global South. And I think uh, what we're seeing in the Ukraine is, uh, on the one hand, you want to support their resistance because anyone that is invaded in their homeland, in their country, should have the right to defend themselves. But at the same time, you look at the contradiction. You look at uh, Twitter, where you, if you post something on Palestine, it usually gets what you call mark, or you might get warned or dropped which is something to say you are pointing to Israel aggressions, uh, you know, supporting Sheikh Jarrah, right of Palestinians to resist, yet both Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram allow a full post of how to do it, how to actually make a Molotov cocktail, or how to operate a, a hangan, or how to attack a tank, and so on. So the contradictions in here, the violence that we support, it becomes blessed, and you could see some people actually religiously blessing military equipment and armament and so on. And again, this is what I call imperial religion. Religion that serves empire always was a handmaiden uh, in its articulation of blessing the violence that is committed in this sense. So God becomes the arbiter of civilized and uncivilized in this context. Well, this is uh, really interesting uh, in the sense that we have this, uh, I mean, I like the binaries that you have uh, exposed here. I mean, the good uh, refugees versus the, the bad refugees and now the, the good violence versus the bad violence in, into like similar lines. Uh, uh, we have seen, for example, students uh, prevented <clears throat> by expressing their solidarity with causes like Palestine's and and other causes around the world. And now, you know, and one of the reasons they, they were told is that, you know, we shouldn't politicize universities and academic institutions. And similarly with sport, like any expression of uh, sympathy. I mean, we, we, we remember how Mesoud Ozil was treated by, uh, by Arsenal when he mm -hmm. uh, basically expressed support to the Uyghurs in uh, Western China, uh, or the Western locations in China. And uh, how, for example, Federica Nute, we have seen other sportsmen trying to uh, sympathize with Gaza and how they were punished and sometimes fined and sometimes, you know, treated very, very negatively in the press. And now we, we, have, we are seeing this 180 degrees flip. I know we have 
talked like so much about these differences and, and, and how, but I, I mean, in this question, what I would like to know is more, what lessons can we uh, draw from this situation moving forward? And what can the people who are advocating for, you know, causes, et cetera, what do, what do they learn from the present situation? I remember that the time with, when Mazout Ozel stood for uh, uh, the Uyghur in uh, China, and uh, I wrote an article about it at the time to try to highlight this approach of demonizing the person that speaks and stands on causes uh, that are not seen to be popular or also at the time because of economic interests and foreign policy interests uh, was seen as almost untouchable. The, the Chinese government was invested in the marketing of all of these uh, sport companies, their trademark, uh, China produces, uh, their factories produce much of the products. And rather than looking at what he was pointing out, he became the problem. And that, again, is the normative process. We're speaking on causes that are not celebrated by power. So again, here, the determining factor is whether you are standing in a cause that is in alignment with power or stand in opposition or seem to be undermining the power. And here, power could be political, economic, religious, uh, social, and so on. So the line of demarcation is whether it is with power or oppositional to power. And we could actually uh, highlight some of these uh, causes in there uh, to point out that the clear double standard, uh, you don't even have to actually point it. The double standard is so clear uh, when you have some Scottish uh, fans of a soccer team, not the soccer team him themselves, but the fans holding a Palestinian flag, the European uh, Soccer Federation and FIFA actually imposed a fine on the club for for actually not removing the flags of fans, which is freedom of expression, right? To be able to, you could carry a banner for anything, right? So the, the Scottish team was actually fined in that. When the Algerian athletes refused to play an Israeli athlete in the judo competition, he was banned for life from actually participating in the judo competition. The line of demarcation in here is that supporting Israel and maintaining relations with Israel is seen as with power, meaning that it is a relationship of power and adoption versus something else. That, for me, is a normative process. Again, I have written that there is six distinctive features when we understand colonization. And I want to make people to understand that colonization is not only having military troops on the ground. That is just one dimension. We are in the post-colonial, but every element of the colonial is still there with the majority of the troops are out, but the political system is still colonial. The economic system is colonial. Educational infrastructure is colonial and producing within a colonial lens. Even religious understandings are responding and engaging in colonial aspects. Colonization was a, a global phenomenon. It's a total global project. 85% of the world's surface, if you looked at it in 1914, 85% of the world's surface was a colony. You were either colonized by the French, Great Britain, and I always say, alhamdulillah, it's no longer great, Belgium, Netherlands, the Italians, and German. So it was a global. The second is also one we have to think that colonization also was a racial project. And that still is the basis demarcation in the world. Who belongs to 
the line of the human versus the line of the subhuman. All of us who inhabit the global south are or belong to the category of the subhuman. And I also would point out that one of the most widely used creams in the global south is the fair and lovely, that literally it produces self-hate as the epistemic of people attempting to enter into the category of the human by literally burning their skin in order to be actually accepted and introduced. So if we want to evaluate Eurocentricity in relations to the racial project, it produced self-hate as its major contribution to the civilizations of the world because you only can enter into that category by removing that which God gave you, which is your skin color, right? So again, that's part of colonization. Third, the colonial project was also infused economics, infused technology, and infused capitalism meaning those three came together. So you cannot speak of colonization. I know these days people think of colonization as a painting you put on the, on the door or uh, just an event that took place back in there. We're talking about the world system was structured with these three elements coming together, uh, economics, capitalism, and technology. So military technology becomes an important piece. Uh, so you can actually draw a main line from colonial era to the destruction in the Second World War. It is not an exception, it's rather a continuity. It's that process that brings us into uh, that point. The fourth element that I also had is the genocides, which also touches in this erasure that I spoke of, the amnesia, the colonial project, both in the, glo- in the Western Hemisphere, the Global South, India, and so on, committed multiple genocides. And one of the most profound aspects of the genocide is what we call, what I call epistemic genocide which is uh, my colleague Ramon Gratz-Fugel has worked on this, is the erasure or complete genocide toward ways of knowing. How we know the world today is all centered or neurocentric frame of reference. How we know, defining what the human right, defining who is the human, defining the scopes of international law, defining everything that is right now is structured around Eurocentricity and the demolition, complete genocide, of the epistemic structures of different people, indigenous people, Muslims, Chinese, Indians. We are all attempting to be recognized as co-participants in the Eurocentric knowledge production part. And that's an aspect that people don't recognize in relations to the genocide. Then you move into the genocide of the indigenous population, the African uh, communities, the the Algerians with France, the uh, Congo, the Belgium, India, and so on. So multiple genocides, and we still have not yet even begin to recognize that. The fifth element that I also uh, highlight is slavery, right? Because often when you talk about the colonization of the new world, produced the genocide of the indigenous population, but also opened the door for a demand-driven slavery, which from both West Africa, parts of Central Africa, and so on, at a low level is about 15 to 20 million, at a high level up to 70 million. Uh, That is the slave institution that was needed or required as a way to try to drive the settlement, plantation, and development of the economy of the new world. And many of those who engage in, in discussion, they immediately say, well, everybody has a slave. The Chinese has slaves, the African has slaves, the Muslims have slaves, and that's correct. This is what you call creating whataboutism in a way to try to avoid dealing with the distinctive aspect of the project of slavery 
that was demand driven and also racially focused, meaning that it was focused on the black subject and it was demand driven. That is that is very, very unique. And it was an economic enterprise that lasted 200 plus 200 to 300 years. Lastly, the sixth element that we need to think about when we are dealing with this is the role of Christianity. Christianity was actually wedded into the colonial project and in uh, the arrival of the colonial army, the arrival of the company, which is the economic factor, East India Company and other, also simultaneously on these ships, on these campaigns was Christianity, imperial Christianity, because we also need to distinguish it from liberation theology to Christianity that also was in the same type of resistance, both historically as well as in the contemporary period. So when we think about how Ukraine and the discourse in the West today, it's important to keep these frames in our minds so we don't become what you call debating between CNN, Fox, BBC, and think that they're given as the frame of reference to understand what is occurring, both in the Ukraine and in the global South. Well, Professor Hatim Bazian, you gave us uh, a lot of things to consider, and uh, there are so many deep insights here to understand the structure of power, the impact of, the, of these structures on the representation modes, on the media. Uh, thank you very much for sharing with us all these insights, and uh, we, you have really given us a lot to, uh, to digest, and I hope the audience appreciates, and uh, we stay in touch. Uh, have, a, have a very lovely uh, day around. Thank you. Thank you thank for you. having me. Wish Thank you all you. the best. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Well, that is all for this episode of Media Mind, brought to you by the TRT World Research Center. This podcast was produced by researcher Sabri Ege. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. Please subscribe to our channel on iTunes and Spotify. Don't forget to leave us a review and a rating. This is Media Mind. Thank you.